0: Section 27 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 3, Chapter 2, Part 2. 4. September had come again, gusty and golden and Joanna had not yet been put to that test, she had almost a year before imagined herself as meeting with a perfection of equanimity. She was in good spirits, standing before her mirror and trying on an absurd little blue hat. She pinned its feather, its feather that so beautifully matched her jade necklace, first at the front like a hussar, then at the back like a sportsman, then at one side like a coquette and she wondered if Feemy too, was pinning on a feather at the other side of the world. Though she was only going to a private view of arts and crafts, where she was hardly likely to see Louis, she had dressed with special care. Her summer holiday had refreshed her, and had been unexpectedly happy. She and Linnet and her mother had enjoyed themselves very peacefully in one of the remoter West Coast villages and the weather had continued so fine that she had left them there for another week or two by the sea. That her mother and she would be setting up house together in London, Georgie expected a baby early in February, was finally decided. But it no longer seemed a calamity. It was simply a situation, and a situation, Joanna now boasted, could always be mastered with good will and management. Certainly things for the moment were going well with her. Her holiday had been good, but it was still better to be back in London. Her theatre work was now well established, yet remained enough of a novelty to be an excitement. Lewis had praised her last two drawings, and praise from him was sweet. Even sweeter had been the extraordinary solicitude he had shown on the night of her return a week before. Her train had been an hour late, but Lewis was waiting on the platform a thing she had scarcely allowed herself to hope for during the crowded and exhausting journey. He would have walked the station all night, he vowed, if need be. And the moons, being away in the country, for the first time these three years Trissy had written grimly, he had himself undertaken her comfort, not only at the station, but in the empty house afterwards. He had coaxed her to eat and drink, had shaken out her travelling clothes, had insisted with unfamiliar tenderness on airing her sheets and taking off her shoes more than by the unexpected passion of the first meeting after weeks of separation had she been stirred and made glad by his new care of her she decided upon keeping the little green feather at one side though there was not a tree in chapel court its corners were heaped with leaves this yellow september afternoon and the wind kept blowing them about the paving stones and against the walls of the houses When front doors were opened it even blew them upstairs and into the top rooms, and now again a solitary, crumpled leaf tossed high in the air would fly in at the window. One came sailing in at the top of Joanna's window now, just as she had set the feather to her liking. It sailed in, as if doubtfully, then floated downward and wavered against her breast. Another happy year, she murmured joyously, as she caught it. There was no longer any grief in the memory of that company of milk-white trees of Alambrosa, under which she had fled about with Mario, trying to catch the falling leaves. So exhilarated was she, and so vivid were all her sensations during the walk of twenty minutes to the gallery, that on getting there she found the specimens of art and craft dull by comparison. Really, as often happens with a certain kind of solitary exhilaration, when it is transferred from a vague to a definite setting, a peculiar reaction had taken place. Joanna herself was not immediately aware of it. She merely condemned the exhibits as astonishingly tame, and turned instead to look at the people. Very likely, she told herself, she might see one she knew, and with a little unacknowledged thinking of her heart she admitted it would be pleasant at the moment to have company. Having already made a vain tour of all the rooms with this in mind, she now returned to the first room and began to watch the new arrivals as they came in from the street through the principal swing-doors. Above these doors was a clock. It pointed, as Joanna absently noticed, to a quarter past five. All at once, as if some stony word had been uttered in her ear, her body became tense. She had seen Louis enter the room and with him was his wife. Joanna had never seen his wife before, but she could not be mistaken. That smiling woman swathed in smoke-gray, for whom he had held open the door, was she. Joanna knew it, though now, as she saw, there were two other women with him. A tall old man and a young man followed. The party, self-absorbed and moving leisurely, proceeded through the first room. Clearly the object of their visit did not lie here. And now Joanna was conscious only of disappointment. Louis had not seen her. How she had prayed, while awful things were happening in her breast, her throat, her limbs, that he would not see her! But now he was almost at the further door and she could not bear it. Her feet carried her rapidly up the long crowded room after him. There they were, in the next room now she stood in the doorway looking why of course it was the moorlake tiles they had come to see some dozen of them were showing in that case rare old persian ones a sight more worth while than most pictures lewis had said of them once cocking up his eyebrows in sincerest admiration and that tall old man was sir john mortlake had she not a drawing of his leonine head at home on the back of a receipt It was a small room, and as the Pender party had just met more friends, they seemed to fill it up. Lewis was introducing someone to the smoke-gray woman. His voice and manner seemed to imply that the gallery existed for him and his friends. You know my wife?" Each time his voice sounded, shudders of darkness kept descending across Joanna's line of vision. But it was as if in addition to her ordinary sight, she possessed some microscopic inner eye which was exempt from emotion, and with this she continued to register facts. That young man, it said, was not Francis, his father's favorite, that was Oliver, the soldier's son. And the pretty, fair girl was his wife Marietta. Yet when it came to Mrs. Pender, the tinily working mechanism would only chronicle a dress. Nothing but a dress. A very beautiful dress it was, remarkable even among the many unusual toilets surrounding it. Other women had to turn and look at it with admiration. But what of the face above these subtle folds and draperies? Do what she could, Joanna could not see it. She was anxious to see it, and by looking once or twice aside tried to refresh her vision for seeing it. But no. The nodding, smiling, ineloquent face of the woman baffled her each time. And though she gazed till she was almost in a stupor with gazing, she could see only a smiling nothing under a hat. "'She's nothing!' cried the girl in her heart with fierce satisfaction. "'She's nothing, like Irene. How can he laugh and talk like that? Why does he bear it?' Undoubtedly Louis appeared very sprightly. Was this his society manner?" Joanna shivered. She remembered his half-amused strutting on the night she first met him. He was never like that with her now, she thanked Heaven. But this was what he could not give up for her. A nausea crept over her. Still, she couldn't turn and leave the place. She could not go till she had seen his face in recognition. At that moment Lewis turned with a roving eye and saw her. He made no visible movement. For perhaps three seconds he stood staring straight at her, maintaining the same apparently easy posture, yet Joanna knew him rigid in every sinew. Then he shifted his hat very slightly on his head and turned away. There had not come the faintest change on his face. It was less an acknowledgment than a denial. It would rob her of identity. Joanna went out. She passed down the long room steadily, pushed herself through the swing doors, and after walking blindly for some minutes found herself in Regent Street. Here she paused for a moment, as if overtaken in spite of her haste by what she most desired to escape. What a sickness was this! What a devastating disgust! "'Shall I bear it?' she asked. And she spoke the question again and again, in a low voice, but audibly as if it relieved her shall I bear it? Shall I bear it?" That she could bear it! Alas, even now she knew! Already the old excuses were beginning to marshal themselves for Louis. What should she have done in his place? What else could he have done? In the circumstances, would it not have been the most distressing folly for him to have acted otherwise? And she herself was a party to circumstance! It was only because of her extraordinary lack of imagination that she now suffered so acutely. Nothing was altered. Not only by her reason, but by her proved capacity for endurance she knew she might bear it. How she could revel in the part of the oppressed and humble still! How she could hug to her bosom this secret jewel with its luster turned inward, which is the inalienable treasure of the outcast! Was it not this that she had unwittingly coveted when for a penance she had kissed the blind beggar? Besides, did anything she had seen today make her need Louis less? Was it less true what he had said? If you leave go of me, I shall be in the mire? She could bear it. But would she? It was not true that nothing was altered. Louis had been lowered in her eyes. She had seen him joined to his idols. But where did the blame lie? In his weakness, or in her own dreadful endurance and humility? This was what must be put to the test for his sake as well as for hers. Her lust for sacrifice should be gratified no longer. Would he also put his infirmity behind him? She had made her choice, he must make his. If the mire was his place, let him sink into it it was cleaner than the stifling falseness into which she had dragged him. Having walked about for nearly two hours, now in a sick fury, now in concentrated thought, she slowly returned to chapel court. Her face under the rakish little hat looked pinched, as if by illness. But as she was wearily opening the moon's green door, she stopped, and a more hopeful expression came over her features someone had begun to thump out the tune called "Sans la upon a neighboring piano. Vulgar and sugary air! How often in her early teens had Georgie wakened the household of a morning by practicing it thinly upon her fiddle! The atmosphere it now conjured up was one of so utter, so unexpectedly morbid a dreariness, that Joanna was forced to take comfort thereat. Whatever life might be now, It was a thousand times better than it had been then. Not before had she realized to the full the unhappiness of her teens. If she were at that moment half so unhappy, she would certainly kill herself. But she had something better to do. In the house a telegram awaited her. It was from Linnet. 5. It was a telegram of eleven words. Joanna read it once. After a short, passive interval she read it a second time. After a longer, more active interval she read it a third time. But already at the third time she knew it by heart. When she drew the thin folded slip out of its envelope that she might read it a fourth time she was seated in the night express on her way to Scotland. She still knew it by heart. For the past five hours it had been reiterating itself in her brain, even on her lips. What was more, the wheels under her carriage and the pulsing engine in front had both got it by heart. They kept repeating the eleven words over and over in a kind of drone. But though this was so, though it had caused her to do so many things with collected swiftness, though it had brought her to the station and had put her into this train that swung and thudded northwards. Perhaps it was all a mistake, a figment of her own tired brain. So she read it for the fourth time. Mother not well. Don't worry, but think you should come, Linnet. It was dated from the village where she had left her mother and Linnet, and it had been dispatched at five fifteen p.m., a quarter past five, the hour upon the clock over the swing doors of the picture gallery, just as she had caught sight of Lewis. Lynette's message had started trembling along a wire in the north. A long, long time ago, it seemed. Far longer than five hours. And it was the telegram that had made it so. Because the telegram had compelled action. It had visibly and in an instant transformed her life, while that other had produced nothing but emotions. Under the violence of the new compulsion Joanna was tempted for a moment to deny the importance of the earlier event. It seemed trivial beside the fact of her mother's illness. But she was growing honest and she refused the evasion. What had happened in the picture-gallery was important, but it could be left. That was all. The summons from Linnet could not wait. Their mother was ill. When had she been taken ill? He did not say there had been no hint of illness in any letter. A week ago she had been well, particularly well. How ill was she now?" "'Don't worry,' Lynnet had said, and Joanna had dwelt on that part of his message in her hurried talk with Georgie before leaving London. They all knew that Lynnet was helpless in the slightest case of illness at home. How much more so, away there in that remote village and under such primitive conditions it was natural that he should send for one of his sisters, and Georgie was not in a state to travel. She was not to worry. Lynnet had expressly said so. But Joanna lay awake all night in the train and knew that there was no hope. Linnet, when he telegraphed, had not known that there was no hope. She was sure of that. His telegram had told her what he himself did not or would not know. Though she could not sleep she lay down, trying to rest. The day had told upon her in an aching fatigue, and she must save the strength that remained for what was coming. Towards morning she slept a very little. In Glasgow she found there was a coast train she might catch with a rush, and a later one which would give her time for some tea and a wash. "'Don't worry,' Lynette had said but Joanna raced for the first train, and scrambled into it as it was moving. On the steamer she swallowed some breakfast, though the thick round oaten biscuits, which in childhood she had enjoyed, were as sawdust in her mouth. It was a rough, bright crossing. There was a band to which the plunging paddle seemed to keep time, and all the white churned weight to dance. Everything recalled the unforgettable journeys of childhood, with piles of luggage, baths with straps round them, perambulators, bags of biscuits for the seagulls, their father pacing the deck springily, laughing with the wind in his beard, their mother falling asleep in a sheltered corner with a tired, happy face. But now all the blown people on the deck looked like ghosts. Upon landing she was told that no coach ran till the arrival of the next steamer an hour later. So she started on foot, leaving her bag to follow by coach. She set out at a good pace, but very soon her fears made the slowness of walking unbearable and she broke into a run. She ran till her breath came in agonizing gasps and she was forced to walk again. She was not to worry. It was probably only a bad cold, or perhaps another gastric attack like the one at the time of the removal, nothing really serious. But the question was, would she get there in time? If she went on walking, she would be too late. So she ran again. And so she kept on running and then walking and then running again, but mostly running, all the way along the winding coast road, with her eyes continuously dazzled by the glittering morning sea. She had about four miles to go. At last there was the cottage. It was the very end one at the far-away end of a row of small white cottages, some thatched, some slated, which stood only about half a mile ahead round the bay. Everything looked as it had looked on the morning, little more than a week ago, when Joanna had left for London. The peat smoke rose comfortingly from the chimneys into the pale blue sky. Dogs barked. Children were playing on the road between the cottages and the sea. And there was Linnet. He waved his hand, shouted, disappeared into the cottage, and in less than half a minute came out again and began running towards her. Joanna waved and ran faster. It was all right, after all. She need really not have worried. Lynette would not wave and shout if Mother was dead. He must have dashed into the cottage just to tell her. "'I knew you would come,' Lynette's first words clashed with the sighing. "'How is she?' that came from his sister as they both sped on without pausing a moment. She'll be as right as rain now you are here, he said soothingly, but with what relief, as he took the breathless Joanna's arm. She was so pleased when your wire came. And he told her how their mother had been well, never in her life better, and in splendid spirits, till three days ago, when she had been taken ill in the night with bad pains. In the morning she had been better, but worse again towards evening. It had only been yesterday morning that he had gone without telling her to fetch the doctor. Mother had been cross. She was positive a strange doctor couldn't understand her constitution, but she had been glad to see him all the same and had taken his medicine. By this morning, all of a sudden, she seemed rather low. It was good that Joanna had come to nurse her. Joanna hardly listened to Linnet's words. She heard, in a heavy stupor of amazement, his declaration that, though he had sent for her, he had not been the least anxious till this morning. But in her pocket she had his telegram of the day before giving her no hope. And for all his voluble reassurances he had not yet contradicted that message. He waited in the tiny, littered sitting-room while his sister went through to her mother's bedroom beyond. There was a dreadful cottage closeness in the air that puffed out to meet her as she opened the door. And mingling with it came an abhorrent breath, which the girl recognized though it had never before blown against her face. Six. On the bed, under a tumbled patchwork quilt, lay Julie. Without changing her uneasy attitude, she turned her face as her daughter came in. My own dear child," she said, with a curious, difficult utterance. But her eyes were lit up. Joanna put her arms round her mother, kneeling by the bed, and the tears rained down her cheeks. "'I came as quick as I could, my darling,' she said, laying her head on Julie's breast. "'And now I'll never leave you again.' Julie stroked her child's head in silence. "'How are you, dear? Are you better? Is the pain gone? Can I get you anything?" "'Quite gone. I'm better. No, nothing to drink. I'll soon be well. But I'm uncomfortable at how untidy the room is.' "'That's what I'm here for, to make you comfortable.' "'This isn't like you, mother,' Joanna chided, drawing herself gently away and looking about the dark, untidy little room. "'What a mess! Lynette is a bad nurse.' Shall I tidy up a bit before the doctor comes, or is there anything I can get for you first? She tried to speak with composure. No, dear. Tidy. I like the room tidied. But leave the bed. No pain now. But must keep still. Don't touch." Joanna, who was trying to open the deep-set, impossible window, looked round aghast. The sick woman beginning the sentence distinctly enough was now mumbling like a drunken person, and at the end of the mumble there was a little dreadful gulp. Running to the bedside, the girl saw that a change had come over the face on the pillow. Linnet, she called out loudly. "'Fetch the doctor! And run! Run!' As if he had been waiting for that word, Linnet sped from the cottage. And now Julie's face had changed still more. She raised her strong, beautiful voice in what seemed urgent speech. But Joanna, to her despair, could not distinguish a word, not even a syllable in the sounds that came. She would have given her life to read the meaning in the eyes that gazed with such intentness of supplication into hers. But she could not. She tried to find some comfort in the strength of her mother's voice. Dying people surely spoke feebly. Don't talk now, darling it will tire you. I'm not going away. We can talk afterwards. Shall I read to you, the morning verses?" Joanna pleaded, and she held up the familiar worn copy of Daily Light with its stamped leather covers and a star on the back, which had lain by Julie's bedside these forty years. But Julie shook her head emphatically. No, no, she said, not now and having clearly uttered these words she babbled off again, vehement but incomprehensible. Then she stopped speaking, and a look of extreme surprise crossed her face. Joanna, beside herself with helplessness, tried to give her water in a teaspoon, tried brandy-and-water, but the liquid only ran down outside the unconscious mouth. And the next moment Julie's face passed from surprise to profound preoccupation she seemed to sink within herself, drew one long terrible breath, and frowned intently. Joanna looked for the first time upon death. 7. Linnet had not yet returned, and after the first panic and blankness, Joanna resumed her mechanical task of tidying her mother's room. It was the last thing she had been clearly asked to do and as she did it she became gradually aware of a deep contentment which she could neither understand nor question. Soon she would be involved in the explosion of mourning. There was Linnet, poor boy. Georgie would have to be told, the doctor would come, and with him an unending, impertinent train of arrangements and condolences. But now, for this little while, she felt close to her mother as never before without speech they seemed to share the secrets of life and death. Soon enough would grief with its clumsy trappings and its real pain smash the exquisite prism. Then all would be chaotic and desolate again. None must rob them of this moment of union. It was infinitely precious and perfect. So Joanna made the toilet-table neat, arranged the bottles together on the crazy mantelpiece, and tried to make the room seemly as her mother had liked it to be but each time she turned away the bed drew her back, and she came again and again to gaze at her mother. She laid her hand upon the forehead, and her flesh recoiled from the waxen coldness of that contact. This, then, was death. We must all die and be like this. No wonder little Ollie had cried, no wonder. Joanna was filled for the moment with anger against the physical outrage of death. She searched the immovable face, questioned it fearfully. We must all die. None could escape. But here was one, who had been used to speak of death as of hidden treasure, to be waited for with patience, but to be coveted exceedingly. Now she had her wish. What was it to her? In that last profound withdrawal by which she had met it, had she been afraid, or joyous, or simply unconscious. Though the frown remained a stern furrow between the brows, the puzzled look was gone, and now the face seemed full of judgment. Joanna had heard that the faces of the dead were peaceful. This face was set in a perfect stillness of indignation and judgment. Julie, the merciful, the striver, the stricken, had become the judge and to her child she would not say one word. She lay there in grave, remote, inexorable understanding, in unrelenting judgment that would never be disclosed. As Joanna was trying unavailingly to straighten the bright quilt over the already stiffening body, a printed card slipped from a fold of the patchwork into her hand. It was lettered in blue, with red capitals and gold underlining and she knew it must have fallen earlier out of daily light, within the flaps of which it had been Julie's custom to cherish such things. These children are dear to me, it ran. Be a mother to them, and more than a mother. Watch over them tenderly. Be just and kind. If their heart is not large enough to embrace them, I will enlarge it after a pattern of my own. If these young children are docile and obedient, bless me for it. If they are forward, call upon me for help. If they weary thee, I will be thy consolation. If thou sink under thy burden, I will be thy reward." The daughter, having read, leaned down, whispered something in her dead mother's ear, and ran out of the cottage, blind with tears. This was death. Not the cold forehead, the stillness, the sad, uncouth posture, but this that the child could never again say, I love you, and see her mother's eyes light up with joy. How unimaginable it was, and how pitiful, that she should now have to ask herself whether once in all these years of womanhood she had clearly and simply declared her love. Now it seemed to her that all these years her mother had been supplicating for that alone. And now it was too late. In the afternoon, Joanna and an old woman from the village washed Julie's body and dressed it for burial. The brother and sister took turns in sitting by the dead till morning. Sometimes they remained a while together, talking in low tones. Once or twice they laughed a little. They felt like plotters. At dawn Joanna was there alone, and suddenly she could endure the room no longer. What foolishness to stay here when her mother had escaped, had gone like a bird over a lake, had fled and left behind all the tedious daily matters she had so hated—the staleness, the fearfulness, the makeshifts, the heavy, dragging carcass of flesh! Outside on the road before the cottage door she drew the breath of the early morning deep into her weary body. After the night in that miserable, airless death-chamber she knew how to savour the caller saltness of the seaweed and wet rocks. She could detect by turning her face inland that warmer, yet as sharp fragrance of the bog-myrtle. And through eager nostrils she inhaled the homely pungency of the peat reek. In her blood she could feel the stirring and upstanding of the millions of tiny plants upon the hillside. With her blood she knew them the little spiky spotted orchises, the knowing flycatchers with sticky leaves, the waxy heads of bell-heather, the small daisy-buds, innocent buds that like cherubim and seraphim covered their faces with all their narrow crimson-tipped feathers. The sun was not yet risen, but the sky looked pearly, and far up some flakes of cloud, winging higher than the rest, were rosy with prophecy. Then, along the horizon, a line of fishing-smacks came beating back to harbor after the night's catch. A meaning, a cohesion in everything she saw, struck on Joanna's spirit as the opening bars of a compelling air of music strike on the ear. The freshness, the pulsing flight of some birds speeding inland, the faint stirring of the trees, the first thin, blue smoke rising from a distant cottage chimney. These were harmonies in a complicated yet decisive theme. They were full of solutions. They gave release to all that was cramped and tortured in the heart. And dominating all of them, like a thought, like melody, like the soul of man, went the tiny, indomitable brown sails, beating along home between the sea and the sky. 8 but the funeral and all connected with it was a progression of horrors. On the steamer, the coffin having been slung on board from the ferry like any other piece of heavy luggage, Linnet and Joanna felt as if they were the sharers in a shameful secret. In Glasgow the house stank with the sweetness of white flowers, most of them sent out of mere respect by old acquaintances of their father, so that to Julie's children the names on the cards were but names and the room seemed always full of whispering people who would belie the dead by their praises. The only relief came from such of Julie's poor folk as they came timidly to the door that they might look once more upon her face and weep. For to them Julie had been but goodness and mercy, and naught besides. Georgie, in spite of her condition, had travelled north. Her grief was real and simple. Yet, when she joined exuberantly with Aunt Georgina, Aunt Ellen, and Mrs. Boyd, in cataloguing her mother's virtues, Joanna turned away, feeling that the dead woman was deserted indeed. If only one of them would say the truth—she failed, or she went unfulfilled, or in death alone has she come to blossom. But no, they would have it, perhaps for their own solace, that she had gone bearing her sheaves with her. More loving than such love there flamed up in Joanna the desire for clear knowledge, for the deep and free admission, in which alone our failures may find their absolution, even their vindication. Oh, when she came to die, might there be one that kept knowledge of her, rather than many that self-sparingly loved, forgave, and so annulled her! Mabel, though she was again at home, this time with her husband, did not come to Glasgow. Neither did she write to Joanna. But she was at some pains to explain both omissions in a letter to Georgie. She hinted at certain of poor darling Aunt Julie's confidences during her stay at La France Quadrant over a year ago. She was awfully sorry that, under the circumstances, and as a sincere person, she felt unable to express the usual kind sympathy with Joanna. And so, as she wished not only to preserve her own integrity, but to avoid giving unnecessary pain, it was better, wasn't it, that she should not stand with them by the grave? She would be with them in spirit. Joanna, with her hatred of false conventionality, would be the first she hazarded to appreciate her genuineness. This had not been an easy letter to write and along with the letter Mabel sent an anchor of violets, of which the too faint natural scent had been fortified by liberal sprinklings of essence bouquet. Joanna was grateful to Georgie for the wrath she displayed over both the letter and the flowers. The perfumed anchor was picked out of its box with the tongs and thrown upon the fire to frizzle. Georgie hugged her sister and swore she would never forgive Mabel, who, after all, couldn't help being a sneak, as she had been born so. But the cousin's accusation remained with Joanna, and tortured her. Unkindness, neglect, and was there something besides? Certainly Mabel had implied a more direct guilt. Joanna remembered the strange gladness she had felt during these few minutes alone with her dead mother before the world had broken in with its lying and vulgar clamor of lamentation. And now it was true, except for a moment, to give and get assurances of love beyond all question, to give and get the kiss of perfect, clear-eyed understanding, she would not have her mother back. A thousand times no. Was she then at heart her mother's murderer? Perhaps she was. But even so, coming from Mabel, the charge was foul. Mabel, who knew them all! Mabel, who, with nods and smiles, had from the very first, urged on the breaking of the household. Oh, Mabel! more hateful and destructive than any murderer! What degradation to be blown upon such as you! These miseries weighed so heavily on Joanna, that at first she hardly felt the stroke of outward shame that now fell on the family and when she did feel it, she inclined almost to welcome it as a destruction. Yet in itself it was grave enough. On the division of the Bannerman estate, Linnet had had to confess to speculative follies of long standing. Only by foregoing the greater part of their portions would the girls and the absent Sholto be able to meet their brother's debts and prevent his public disgrace. And this done, Mr. Boyd, as their mother's trustee, their father's friend, and Linnet's employer, insisted seriously on the expediency of Linnet's leaving Glasgow with the least possible delay. Linnett himself, rather to everybody's surprise, made no objection. Sholto, he declared, had long ago invited his coming to Australia, and he was not forced to assume that Mr. Boyd had anything to do with the prompt but hearty renewal of that invitation, which he now received by cable. Joanna saw him off. To the end he maintained an admirable show of unconcern. He had been deucedly unfortunate, said his manner, and though his sister could not meet his eyes because of that in them which so belied his words, she had to love him for his refusals, to pay him tribute in that he neither cringed nor broke down. Seeing her brother on the deck of his ship, waving his hat to her in farewell, and with his narrow, finely cut head bare against the grey morning sky, Joanna was confronted yet again with her most familiar image. Like a key, the master symbol of her life heretofore was put into her hand. Even as a bird, out of the fowler's snare, escapes away, so is our soul set free. End of section 27.